Hi everyone, I'm Cheryl Rose. Welcome to Season 2 of Maybe. This is a podcast about what I call the messy reality of working for social innovation. These are stories about uncertainty and risk, about holding really big questions, not always having answers. These are honest conversations, and they're stories about people trying to act in very new ways. My own work has been all about supporting people who engage with that kind of complexity, people with a passion for big change. Now, you might hear those words, big change, and think on a big scale. Maybe you think about our communities, our country, our world. But you know what? It turns out that change is sometimes needed most of all within each of us, in our own selves, if we really want to be part of action that will matter. Last season, we talked a lot about different kinds of actions and roles for social innovation. Weaving, bridging, disrupting, advocating. And then... There's being an ally. Allies around gender, race, sexual orientation, abilities, and more. My own understanding of allyship, especially between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people, is rapidly changing. I am learning. I used to think ally was a label, like almost a badge that stood for an openness and a willingness to help. But because of the lessons I've learned from Indigenous people, from others that I think of as true allies... And, to be honest, from my own assumptions and mistakes, I see now that it's not so much about being an ally, it's about acting in allyship and solidarity. And to do that, to genuinely do that, that means hard work. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and whenever I do, I can't help but remember a conversation that I had in a podcast last season with Indigenous leader Jessica Bolduc. Learn and educate yourself, because... It's, it's like we're putting so much energy in trying to support non-Indigenous people to help us better, but it's like we need to be in our community so much more than ever right now. Like we need each other, and so we need allies to do their work. Knowing that you need to do work is one thing, but what work, what to do, where to start Well, for me, some first steps have been to take some initiative and to learn more about the colonial history of Canada and also about what is true today about First Nations. And then I checked in with some colleagues of mine who are, just like me, non-Indigenous, white, but their whole jobs are actually completely focused on working in allyship with Indigenous people. Dan is a prof and a researcher whose entire academic career has been focused on working in community with Indigenous partners. So I wanted to know, what was he learning about acting in allyship? As an ally, you can't go in looking for outcomes and thinking, I've got a research program, I want to implement it, I think it'll benefit this community. That's exactly the opposite of what should be the priority. The priority should be building relationships. I think the way that it's shifting now, as opposed to being, you know, an expert and coming in, even in a humble way and saying, hey, you know, we're doing this kind of work. How can we help? For me, I think it's more creating space for Indigenous people, practitioners, experts, more making space for them to step in, to do the work, and for us to get out of the way. Sounds like Dan is learning to adjust and adapt his role as an ally. 
And there's Pam, who works at a large foundation. She is deepening her views and practice of allyship. And she has the great gift of teachings from Anishinaabe knowledge keepers like Mark and Wendy Phillips. Teachings about time and trust, about boundaries and boldness. One of the most important things is to think about boundaries and to be aware of of your boundaries as a non-Indigenous person. Um, And this is why relationships are so important because I have a number of Indigenous people who I, you know, I'm kind of constantly checking in with um, to make sure that I am working within my boundaries um, and that I'm not crossing them, um, but that also that I'm doing enough, right? That I'm not kind of using it as a shield to not be bold. As my call with Pam was coming to a close, I wondered what kinds of questions she might still hold about allyship. Whose responsibility is it to get all these non-Indigenous folks who want to be allies up to speed, right? Um, To get them, to help them to do their work. And there's um, incredible Indigenous organizations who, who do this work. There's a lot of Indigenous facilitators that do this work well. Um, and then I also come across Indigenous folks who are, you know, saying like they're tired of doing that work and they would like non-Indigenous people to do that work. Whose job is it? Whose responsibility is it to help people become allies for Indigenous people? I'm so grateful to know someone who has a lot to say about this whole concept of allyship, Melanie Goodchild. And as far as whose job is it to prepare allies, Melanie, who is an Indigenous woman, has often said about herself, well, that is work that I've signed up for. Melanie is completing her PhD in social and ecological sustainability at the University of Waterloo. She is also a much-in-demand public speaker, advocate, and advisor to many organizations and boards across North America. But the thing right now that she's putting most of her energy into is working towards the launch of the Turtle Island Institute, which will support Indigenous-led social innovation for Indigenous communities. For years now, Melanie has worked with a number of non-Indigenous partners, frankly, because they have resources of all kinds that can help her to realize the vision that she has for this institute. In other words, she's worked with lots of people who think of themselves as allies. And no, it's not lost on me that calling on Mulaney is exactly some of that burden that Jessica was talking about at the start of this show. But truthfully, I just felt I'd gone as far as I could before checking in with her experienced perspective. So I asked Melanie if she would share some time with me to talk about acting like an ally. Melanie, thanks so much for taking some time to talk with me. I'm holding in my hands some tobacco um, in great gratitude for you giving me this time and your energy and sharing your thoughts. And I look forward to seeing you in person one day soon when I can give this to you. Miigwech, Cheryl, thank you. Apajago miigwech, bizindawiyag. Bojo in Dinawamag and a duck. Wabskeo Gitchadakwez and Ung Nishnikaz, Wab Nung and Dishnikaz, Musto dem, Bigtgong Nishnabeg, Donjaba, Kitigan Zibi, Donjaba. So I said hello, greetings, all my relations. Uh, thank you for the conversation today. And I introduced myself by my spirit names. And I also said that I am from Bigtigong Nishnabeg and Kitigan Zibi, which are in northwestern Ontario. In English, I'm called Mulaney, 
named after my dad, Delaney, and my mom, Melinda. And I'm happy to chat with you today, Cheryl. When I was introducing her, I mentioned Melanie's work, launching the Turtle Island Institute, and allyship is woven right into this project. For me, the vision for Turtle Island Institute is is evolving. I think it's a process of co-creation between different worldviews, and those worldviews are represented by, on the one hand, First Nations, Anishinaabe, in my case, Anishinaabe, Gikandasawin, which is our knowledge systems. And on the other hand, the worldview that comes into play with social innovation is the Western worldview. So teachings from systems thinking and complexity theory. And the vision for Turtle Island Institute is to bring those together in an ethical way, what we call, uh, Willie Ermine called an ethical space. And so I apply something called the principle of two-eyed seeing, which was brought to us by the late uh, Merdina Marshall and Albert Marshall, Mi'kmaq elders. It's interesting because from the beginning, when we talked about Turtle Island Institute uh, with with colleagues in social innovation, you know, who are tackling wicked problems, large scale systemic transformative change, I would have to go interpret that uh, to elders and knowledge keepers back home where I'm from. And the elders came back to me and they said, oh, a teaching lodge. And I think that's the ultimate outcome where people who aren't familiar with social innovation can come learn and, and people who are experts in social innovation but unfamiliar with Anishinaabe, Gik, and Dasawin with our worldview can come to learn as well. Can you give me an example of what challenges those relationships with your non-Indigenous partners have posed? Yeah, there's been a number of challenges from that ethical space and trying to honor and maintain that ethical space. And people get really excited, but I think have taken, taken me off that path. And I've had to make difficult decisions where I decouple Turtle Island Institute from some of those partners because we've realized or I've realized that um, they were taking me in a different direction. And in and, and very, sometimes what seemed like uh, surprising and, and almost innocent ways. For example, I call this uh, the BAU model, the business as usual. Mm-hmm. The way that, that nonprofit organizations, the way that Western organizations and businesses do business, the, the timetables, the, the, the locations, you know, we'll just meet here in, in, without a recognition of where we're meeting, the territory, the knowledge keepers, the language that we're speaking in, the time frame that it takes to do something. There's, there's always a push for an intellectual approach and response to things. And Turtle Island is holistic, recognizing the four directions, which is uh, in Anishinaabe, the medicine wheel teaching, right? Spiritual, mental, physical, emotional. And so while something may be taking me through an intellectual approach, like say my university studies, really more of what Turtle Island Institute is about as a lodge is about the spiritual and the emotional side of things and the physical, you know, meeting in a a four-walled room is very colonial to me. Mm. I, I, I think we should meet in roundhouses. I think we should go out on the land. We should be in lodges. And I've done, I've worked really hard to try to center that so that people who are involved, who are non-Indigenous that are supporting me, I've actually brought them to Ketagonzibi and into the lodge and up the sacred mountain and done ceremonies so that they can understand that when I speak in English about something like the land, 
I'm not thinking about the land the same way an environmentalist is thinking about the land. I'm thinking about it uh, in a very spiritual way, in the ways of my ancestors. It makes a big difference because that's a really profound and transformative experience for people to come to a place where, I'm going to use the term here, Wabskie, white, whiteness is not the norm. Whiteness isn't centered. To be in that space, and but in a good, loving, compassionate place, not in a place of, of a reverse power dynamic. Oh, now you're on the, you know, now you're on the reserve and you're in the minority. It, it's not about um, a power dynamic in that sense. It's actually about having people experience where our knowledge comes from and how we experience knowledge that Gik and Dasawin is experienced through land-based teachings. And so we could read a book about it, we could even watch a video about the land, but until you're out there uh, picking medicines or doing ceremonies and listening to elders who are talking about how everything in the lodge comes from the land, comes from our relatives, the animals, how we have our clan responsibilities, until that's not just talked about, until that's lived and experienced, I think then people feel it from the heart. And I need people who work with me to come on that journey with me, to kind of humble themselves and to see that there is a whole profoundly different way of experiencing humanity and the universe and that that's the heart of the teaching lodge. As Melanie says this, I can't help but think what an amazing opportunity for her non-Indigenous partners. But it also sounds like a lot of work for her. Do you ever feel kind of frustrated by that, by the energy and time it takes to help others to be the kind of partners that you need? I think that it can be really frustrating. It depends on the mood I'm in. It can be exhausting. I, I, for example, through my work, I work in a lot of cross-cultural contexts, but it's frustrating when you're asked to speak to people about how to be an ally, for example, because in some ways that you're checking off a box and you're, you might actually be distracting them and their organization from the real work of truth and reconciliation, which is addressing power dynamics because they've had you speak and that's a checked box, if you know mm. what I mean. Yeah, you're, I do you're, you're, Yeah, you're the keynote speaker, so they don't have to actually do anything about their entire you know, industry or sector because they've had Mulaney or many others speak at their event or sit on their, their committee. I want to ask you if there's any other things that come to your mind about what real active allyship needs to look like. Like, are there other things that you would say to non-Indigenous people? This is what you need to think about. This is what you need to do. I remember when I brought together wayfinders, you know, people helping us find our way. They were all Indigenous and some of my partners in Turtle Island Institute, for that particular gathering, I said, I, I really don't want any white people there. I said, I need to have um, indigenous artists and change makers and innovators and educators come together. And, and my colleagues who are non-indigenous said, oh, well, but we really want to be there to learn. I said, no, that's not the purpose. So I think you have to be cognizant of the fact that, that the work that that you do, Indigenous peoples, we need our own spaces. I mean, we mm. get that for sure when we're home and we're in ceremony, but I needed to have the Indigenous folks come together to talk about Turtle Island Institute and social innovation and what that meant from an Indigenous perspective without kind of being sidetracked with that yeah. 
you know, a hundred questions and the teachings. And so when I brought those wayfinders together, I asked my brother Keith Busno from Garden River, an elder to come and start us in ceremony every day. And I invited my colleague, uh, she's Lakota from Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, so that we could start in ceremony and recognize, you know, Turtle Island includes all of Turtle Island, all of North America. And I said to the group, what, what's the number one consideration for Turtle Island Institute itself to be, uh, and I didn't phrase it this way, but effectively I was asking, how can Turtle Island Institute be a good ally to indigenous communities and peoples? And the elder whispered in my ear, sincerity. And I thought, oh, that's a great word. What's an example of a humble, sincere, open first step for people? What I've learned throughout the years that I've been working with Indigenous communities and others who are working alongside us is that when you're trying to fight oppression, oppression of of any kind, a sincere and humble approach is when it's done so not just because of what it earns you, whether it, it makes you feel righteous or, you know, you look good. It's actually about that sincerity that the the elder talked about. Here's an example of something that I think is a major uh, approach that that others should think about, and that's sharing your privilege and your your platform. Mm. So if you have a voice, and you need to remember the the people that that have a voice too, but they're voiceless in those power dynamics. Right. So so some elite, you know gatekeepers are, are keeping those voices out and it could be through structures of you know just conferences you know who gets invited to the conference who speaks at this event and an example of that and I was only two years old when it happened was when Marlon Brando in 1972 he declined the Oscar like he actually refused to accept the best actor Oscar uh, for the Godfather and he sent Sashin Littlefeather an actress in his place, and she was president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee, which we're still dealing with, you know, portrayals and images of Indigenous peoples in Hollywood and mascots and all kinds of things. And she was able to, she didn't get to read his whole address, but she was able to bring attention to that. I thought that was an act of allyship. And I remember that people with power can, can really break rules. Mm. And when they have the courage to do that for no other reason than they need to, to be able to support what other people are doing and doing it on their terms. Like, I don't think Marlon Brando just sprung that on Sashin Littlefeather. I think they talked about it. And then he didn't go there. He didn't even go to the ceremonies. He left the space she, for her. He did. She stood up. You know, you can watch it on YouTube. She stood up. She went up there. She got booed. Then she got cheered. And she said he refuses this Oscar in protest of the treatment of Native Americans and wounded knee and in support of the Indian rights movement. And so sometimes about stepping up and sometimes it's about stepping back. And then there's a thoughtfulness in all of that of figuring out what's the right thing to do here. Exactly. And I think the thoughtfulness, and that, that was, you know, why I mentioned, I don't think Brando just, you know, she was obviously there and prepared and they had talked about it, that you co-create that. Mm. You can't just assume that the right thing to do is step up or step back. You need to talk to the people because sometimes I actually want someone to step up. Other times I want them to step back. And I, and I need people to be patient because, like I said, it's not an intellectual 
uh, performance for me to think about how I do the right thing in certain situations, how best to help or for me to step aside as well or to be an ally. And I've had to learn how to be an ally myself to other communities that I'm not a member of. Melanie, to what extent do you think that Indigenous people and communities even need non-Indigenous allies? I think it's necessary right now, given that we are still recovering from a colonial history in this country. I will probably be recovering it from it for a long time. But the heart of what our communities are fighting for in terms of social justice, land dispossession, you know, child welfare, addictions, the people who still run all of those institutions are non-Indigenous peoples to a large degree, the federal government, for example. And, and so we are coming through a time that our elders have told us about in prophecy where Indigenous, uh, like Anishinaabe, Gikandasawin, and Damawin, our knowledge and our wisdom is going to be the center of that. And so we are now reclaiming and revitalizing a cultural and spiritual approach to governance, to health and well-being. And we need allies who understand that that doesn't look like necessarily mainstream. We need, I think we continue to need allies, but we need allies in the way that we just discussed. Humble, yeah. who, who ask what's needed and then, and then provide that for us to define that. And like I said, to have the patience to know that we're co-creating that together because some of these are really new spaces. You know, how do we work when we're still living under the Indian Act in this country? Despite long-standing challenges, I hear Malini say that, yes, we do need non-Indigenous allies. And that motivates me even more to try and get it right, to show up in ways that matter. But in trying to get it right, I wonder, are we even using the right words for this kind of role? Is there a better term than ally when it comes to how non-Indigenous people think about um, their role in reconciliation with Indigenous people and communities? I don't know if there's an, an other appropriate term because there's helper, but in English, that doesn't translate well. So back home, when we're a helper, we're very humble, and we help in the lodge, we help the, you know, the elders. That is a very beautiful thing to be. Mm. But I think the connotation of helper in English might not be appropriate, because it does bring in, again, that charity model of, you know, I'm, I'm helping um, someone. Is that, is it because they can't help themselves? No, I think that's the whole point of understanding that being an ally is about power. Yeah. It's actually not just about professing allyship or, you know, what you get out of it in return either. I think it's actually really honestly about changing power dynamics that oppress people. Even thinking about allies, I would probably need to go home and, you know, maybe in six months or a year, if you ask me that same question, I'll have a new answer. Hmm. Well, I'll be happy to talk to you in six months or a year, Melanie. And I really want to thank you so much for talking with me today. And um, I think you've got many important things to say that will be, I hope, helpful to those that want to act in more genuine, sincere, humble solidarity with Indigenous people. Thank you. Oh, miigwech, giga wa min minwa. 
I'm left thinking that true allyship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples is possible. But more than ever, I understand that it will mean work on myself and with others, thoughtful, ongoing work. And maybe some of the most important steps towards allyship are to become humble and honest about power, open and courageous about co-creating the steps forward, and to live into those ways of being as we move into action. My heartfelt gratitude to all my guests on this episode, especially Melanie Goodchild, for her generosity, grace, and insights. Thanks also to my friends and colleagues, Dan McCarthy, a faculty member at the University of Waterloo, and Pam Ort-McNabb, a senior program officer at the McConnell Foundation. The excerpt that you heard from Jessica Bulldog's interview is part of season one. Her story is in episode one and can be found at maybepodcast.ca, or you can subscribe to the Maybe Podcasts through iTunes and Stitcher. Molly Siegel is our amazing podcast coach and advisor, and the talented technician Esther Gad provides post-production support. The Getting to Maybe Social Innovation Residency at the BAMP Centre and all the people who've been involved with it are the inspiration for this podcast series. Melanie Goodchild, Pam Ort-McNabb, and Jessica Bolduc are all past participants in the program. Dan McCarthy has been one of my colleagues on the program faculty team. I want to acknowledge that Banff is located on Treaty 7 territory, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina First Nations. I hope you'll keep listening to these kinds of stories. Join me next time for more about the complexities of working for social innovation. Another story about getting closer to Maine.